Why don't you guys open your Bibles right now to the Gospel Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we should have some in the back. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible. We have them for free. We want you guys to have one. Um, we get into God's Word here. If you guys are new here, what we do typically Sundays is we go through the Bible. We teach uh, passages. We teach basically through books of the Bible. Uh, we've been in a series uh, for quite a while now in the Gospel of Mark. Today we're in chapter 12. In short, I'll give you kind of a little bit of a preface as to what we'll be looking at here today, and then uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the passage, and then we'll get to work. So the preface basically goes like this. It really boils down to um, what Jesus is going to do is going to be confronted by some more of the enemies that have been out to try to entrap Jesus. But the issue that Jesus is going to be asked about has to do with the afterlife. Um, but then Jesus answers and gives some information about the afterlife. But what I want to propose to you guys to think about is that what you believe and what you understand with regard to what happens after you die, the afterlife affects the way that you live. It totally affects the way that you live. We'll see this become very clear within the passage that we'll read and how Jesus interacts with these people. But the premise that I want for you to think about, I want for you to begin to chew on and to, we're going to try to unpack in a little bit is the premise of how you believe, what you believe will take place after you die will affect the way that you live, how you spend your money, how you invest in people, how you invest in church, how you invest in individuals, how you invest in societies and communities. It affects and changes everything. So with that being said, I'm going to pray. Then we're going to read the passage in Mark chapter 12, somewhere around verse, uh, 15, uh, verse 18, sorry, down about verse 27, and then we'll begin to unpack the text. So if you guys wouldn't mind joining with me, we'll pray, and then we'll read the passage. Jesus, we just ask for your help, and even before we read your word, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would just give us wisdom. God, we pray this morning that as we study your word, that we would not just simply have light, but we would have heat. God, that you would stir in our hearts, that you would awaken affections inside of us for you. God, that we wouldn't just simply walk away with information, but God, that we'd be changed, be transformed, that your word would impact us and affect us and change the way that we think about you, change the way that we think about what will happen after we pass from this life, and change the way that we think about how we live our lives now, how we love the least of these, how we care for those that are hurting or poor or marginalized or broken, how we spend our money. God, all these things are important uh, signposts as to what we believe, what we truly believe about after this life. So we pray for your help right now. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can follow along with me. <clears throat> Mark chapter 12, verse 18 starts off like this. It says this, And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, <clears throat> and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, that man must take a widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. And there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring, and the second took her, and he died, he left no offspring, and the third Likewise, and the seven, all the way to the seven, left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And here's the big question based upon their case study, verse 23. In the resurrection, remember they just said they don't believe in the resurrection, so obviously these guys are setting Jesus up. In the resurrection, uh, when they arise again, whose wife will she be? The seven had her as a wife. Verse 24, the way to dignify a foolish question is to dignify it with Silly answer. Jesus is going to try to address them. Here's what he says in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? 
Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. And as the dead being raised, have not you heard or read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how that God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. You are quite wrong. That's what Jesus has to say to these guys. The issue has to do, like I said already, with the afterlife. What happens when one dies? In particular, the issue is even beyond the afterlife. It has to do more specifically with what we describe as the resurrection. And Jesus is addressed about the resurrection by a group of guys that don't believe in the resurrection. Up until this point, uh, Jesus has been, or Mark has been telling us the story about Jesus. And what we've been trying to say from the very beginning of this is that we need revelation not speculation as to about who Jesus is. The way that our current culture typically operates and the way that we oftentimes think about God or spiritual things or even in particular Jesus is the way we typically approach Jesus is we usually pick and choose various elements. We edit our own Jesus. So what we do is we take certain features of Jesus that we particularly find entertaining or that we particularly like, things like Jesus is loving and he's kind and he's a special guy and he has good sayings and he's kind of like a mixture of Mother Teresa and Confucius and his good teachings and all these other people together. And so what we happen oftentimes do is we take little elements of Jesus that we like, but other elements that we find about Jesus that are a little bit confusing or straight up um, antagonistic to our own perspectives and understanding, or we find contradictory the way that we think, or we find ourselves being challenged or confronted by certain things that we find about Jesus that make us a little bit uncomfortable, we oftentimes conveniently edit those things out. And that's a problem. And one of the reasons why I've been saying this from the very beginning is that a Jesus that you and I create is actually an impotent Jesus. Because the reality is, one of these days, you're going to go through a difficult time in your life. You will face challenges and hardships and struggles and all sorts of different things that will come against you. If you're young, which a lot of you are young, some of you might be like, ah, it's all good. Life is great. Cheer up. It will get worse. That's just the way life is. There will be things that you will face that you are not expecting. And all these things oftentimes point to the fact that you're not in control. The way that you think you're in control. And if the Jesus that you created you, becomes the one you call upon in that moment of crisis, he can't help you. Because he doesn't exist, for one, because you created him. For two, he's impotent because he doesn't exist. You made him up. The point that I would make is this, is that what we really need is revelation. We need God to speak. And this is what we believe Mark is doing for us. He's revealing to us who Jesus is. And so we have really the option to listen to what Mark has to say and to believe it, to trust it, or to harden our hearts against it and to refuse it. And therefore, by default, we will then continue to create our own little edited versions of our Savior, which really can't help us. So that being said, what we want to do is we want to begin to take a look at the story that Jesus has or that Mark is telling us about Jesus. In this particular case, Jesus will be confronted by a group of people called the Sadducees. And the issue has to do with, like I mentioned earlier, the resurrection, but also the afterlife. I want to take a look at three specific things this morning with regards to the resurrection. The first of which is we'll take a look at the problem of the resurrection. The second thing we'll take a look at is the ignorance that they have with regard to the resurrection. And then the third thing we'll take a look at is really the promise of the resurrection and what Jesus has to say with regard to the resurrection. 
The first thing I want to take a look at is the problem of the resurrection. Some of you might think, I don't have a problem with the resurrection. Well, chances are you're probably a Christian. You love Jesus. You have some idea, perhaps, as to what the resurrection is about, so it's not a problem for you. But it was a problem to these Sadducees. Mark tells us that these people actually had a problem with the resurrection. They disbelieved in the resurrection. I want to, first of all, jump in very quickly and try to unpack a little bit as to who these Sadducees were. There are a group of people that were basically following Jesus around that didn't like him. Most of them kind of get classified under the big umbrella heading as being the religious leaders. And there's truth to that, but they're nuanced underneath that banner, meaning they're not all uh, the same. We see the Pharisees. I'm not going to look at them today. But in this case, we see a group of people called the Sadducees. Uh, The word Sadducee actually comes from a uh, Hebrew word, Sadak, which basically means just or righteous. Um, And basically, these guys called themselves the just ones. So that's what a Sadducee means. You're like, what does Sadducee mean? Can you imagine being part of a club, and you're like, we're the righteous ones? That was these guys. They were the religious leaders. But oftentimes, these guys get the rap of being identified as being the liberals. They are the religious liberals. The Pharisees are the religious, you know, right. They're the ones that are basically um, like hardcore fundamentalists and so on and so forth. But in reality, these guys are also very fundamental. So don't, don't think of them as being liberal. One of the reasons why they're oftentimes identified as liberal is because they only viewed the first five books of Moses as being authoritative. And so therefore, some people have kind of been left to think that, well, these guys are editing their own Bible. But you got to look at it from their perspective. These guys are looking at it and saying, no, 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 we hold to the first five books of Moses as being the only sole authoritative corpus of revelation from God. Anything else is non-authoritative. Isaiah came after Moses. Um, Daniel after Moses. Ezekiel after Moses. We don't believe what those guys have to say or what they teach. These guys were radical fundamentalists that basically held tenaciously to the uh, inerrancy and the inspiration of the first five books of Moses only. So therefore, as a result of that, any other types of passages in Daniel, for example, or Isaiah or uh, Ezekiel, some of these other passages that would talk about uh, what we would identify as a resurrection, these guys denied it. They denied miracles. They denied any type of afterlife. And this is who these guys were. So they were landowners. They had... um, Powerful friendships in high places. But what you'll find about these guys that's very unique and very important to understand is that there are different ways in which people were trying to establish certain levels of power and authority in the first century. Some of you are like, first century? That sounds like today. It is. It's just like today. It's the exact same thing. Okay, there was all sorts of different types of people in the first century, just like there's different types of people today. But they had different ways of obtaining power. In the first century... You had people in Judaism that basically viewed themselves as revolutionaries. These were people that tried to secure and obtain power by way of the sword. They would kill people. They didn't have any problem with terrorist attacks, and they they were terrorists. They would basically uh, scout out any types of military might that was uh, sort of like a Roman outpost, and they would slit throats of these Roman guards. This is the type of way in which they were out to try to obtain power. That's different than the way the Sadducees try to obtain power. The Sadducees obtain power by being very powerful, by being very rich, and the way that they established their power was by forging these relationships with the Roman government. Basically, it went like this. The Roman government, for the most part, they weren't too fond of Jews. They weren't too fond of Israel. But 
if you kind of got that unfortunate job and you had to live in Israel, you basically had to figure out a way to make friends with the natives of the area so that you don't have constant revolts, right? It doesn't look good on your resume when Caesar sees there's constant chaos within your region, right? Does that make sense? So if you're trying to climb your way up in Caesar's, you know, business, corporation, you know, uh, you, you want to make certain that there's peace. And so what they did is they basically forged uh, relationships with this very strong ruling class of religious leaders called the Sadducees. This is the way that they obtained their power, was by relationships with the Roman government and other people of great power and authority, okay? So this is what was happening. So the problem that these guys had was basically twofold. The first of which is theological, which I've already pointed out. The reason why they theologically had a problem with the resurrection was because they held specifically to the first five books of Moses as being authoritative in any other passage in the Old Testament that had to do with the resurrection, they discounted. Any other passage that had to do with miracles, they discounted as non-authoritative. So it was a theological problem. The second problem that they had was sociological or social. Now, here's what I want for you to understand. Because these guys had worked hard to get to a place of great authority and great power, because these guys had a lot of power, they amassed a lot of power and authority over the people throughout all of Israel, and the way that they obtained their powers by these relationships or these sort of um, contracts and agreements and alliances with what would be identified as sort of the enemy, meaning the Romans, um, they were always fearful of losing that power. We've said this before. This is the problem with making a good thing an ultimate thing. Whenever it becomes an ultimate thing in your life, it could be a relationship, it could be a quest for love, it could be a quest for affirmation, approval, it could be power. Whenever you take those good things and you make them ultimate things, you're always afraid of losing them. Does that make sense? If money becomes an ultimate thing in your life, you might be looking at your life and thinking, I don't have any money. Well, one of the ways in which you can identify that money is an ultimate thing is because you're always thinking about what you don't have. You're always plan, planning, plotting ways to obtain more money. Some of you are like, I got a lot of money. But one of the ways in which you can identify that money is an ultimate thing in your life is because you're never generous. You don't give it away. You're always figuring out ways to secure it, to protect it, to hide it away, to invest it in other foreign markets because you're fearful about losing it. It is the means by which you can somehow live Put your head on your pillow at night and have security. The moment it's gone or the thought of it being gone, you freak out because it's an ultimate thing. These guys, for them, power was an ultimate thing, and they wanted to secure it. So they come to Jesus, and they ask Jesus a question about the resurrection. Now, some of you might be thinking, what does a question for Jesus about the resurrection have to do with losing power and securing their position within the Jewish government and the Roman government, so on and so forth? Well, it basically goes like this. Probably about 130 or so years before Jesus came around, there was a revolution. It was called the Maccabean Revolt. And what had happened was uh, there was a group of people called the Seleucids. And these guys were, in essence, um, uh, Greeks. And they had, had um, kind of dominion over the region of Judea. And the Jews hated these guys. In fact, there was a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes. He was one of the leaders of this, of this uh, region, over this region. And this guy hated the Jews, and he was always playing games on them and always trying to get them frustrated and upset. And what he did is he basically went into their temple, which is the most sacred place for every single Jew, and he offered, you know, within the Holy of Holies, uh, a pig. All right, if you're Jewish, you know, you realize you, you don't eat pork in the first place, but to offer a sacrifice like a pig, 
on the altar, you completely defile that. Well, that, that was basically the straw that broke the camel's back. And that created a revolt. The revolt stemmed from a family, uh, brothers, uh, it's called the, the Maccabean brothers. And what these guys did is they basically became Jewish ninjas. They figure out ways to be trained and to train a bunch of other thugs to, to basically stage an upset or a revolt to overthrow the, the Greek government. And they did. They were successful. There's a lot of blood that was spilt, a lot of turmoil that took place. But at the end of the revolution, these brothers finally got caught. One of the brothers was basically, uh, uh, was actually killed. And there's, there's, a, there's a story called the First and Second Maccabees, um, if you're familiar with like the Apocrypha. Uh, one, that's one of the books in there. Josephus, uh, an early historian, he was not a Christian, uh, refers to it. Basically, it goes like this. While one of the brothers is being tortured, the mother is watching her own son being killed. And while she's watching her son being killed, she's basically reminding him, they can cut off your arms, they can cut off your legs, they can gouge out your tongue, but... In the resurrection to come, you'll have a new tongue. You'll have new eyes. You'll have a new hand, new feet. In other words, God will give back to you everything that you've lost in the staged revolution. Okay, so here's, here's the problem. So the, these, these Sadducees are coming to Jesus, and their question is basically a roundabout attempt to ask Jesus, are you a revolutionary? Do we have to worry about losing our power? Because if you upstage the Romans, if you do what the Maccabees had done, and you start slitting people's throats, and you start staging terrorist attacks, and you start killing people, um, then what will happen is Rome will come in, we will lose our power, we will lose our place, we will lose our status, and we want to know right now. Because if you are a revolutionary, because the greatest of revolutionaries, the Maccabee brothers, were stern believers in the resurrection, they're basically asking Jesus, are you in the same family line, or at least by way of morals, as the Maccabean revolt? Do we have to worry about job security? And Jesus, if you are a revolutionary, we want to know. Do you believe? Now, they're not going to come around and be like, no, Jesus, are you a revolutionary? Are you training a bunch of ninja warriors? What are you doing, Jesus? They're not going to ask Jesus that question, right? Because they know Jesus is going to be like, no, no, we're not going to do that. But they ask Jesus in a roundabout way, do you believe in the resurrection? That's what they want to know. Really, are you a revolutionary? So the problem for them, like I said, is not only theological, but it's also social. Because here is the issue for them. They realize that if Jesus was a revolutionary, and at least in the order of the way that revolutionaries have always operated in the past, kill people, overthrow governments, and so on and so forth, then they have everything to lose. So basically, in essence, what the, the problem with any type of life after death or resurrection, is this. What you believe about any form of life after death will actually shape the way that you live this life currently. If you have some form of a belief that there is no life after death, that this life is all that you have, that there's nothing beyond the grave, there's no hope of anything beyond the grave, this is all that you have, then you will live your life in such a way where you'll be reckless, you can do things for the purpose of advancing yourself. Now, I made a comment earlier uh, before I even started, that I'm 42 years old. Now, when I grew up, I grew up in Huntington Beach, and I started surfing at around, I don't know, age 13 on the south side of the pier in Huntington. I've been surfing my whole life. Um, I don't get to surf as much as I used to surf, but 
every once in a while, I have, an oppor- I have a friend that will call me up and he'll be like, hey, I want to take you on a trip to Costa Rica. So he basically puts the whole bill, which is amazing. And when I go to Costa Rica, when I've gone to Costa Rica uh, the few times that I've had a chance to go, I find that I don't surf as well as I used to surf. And it's not so much, and, and, and funny thing is, is I might even have better boards than I had when I was young. And I actually might have more knowledge and wave knowledge and knowledge of the sea as a whole than I ever had before. But I find myself being a little bit more cautious, a little bit more careful, a little bit more calculated because I got two daughters and a wife. And I know that if I go over the falls on a really, really big wave, I might not come back up again. And that's a problem for me because I realize even though I'm going to know I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to be with Jesus, it's all good, but I'm also realizing the fact that having a paralyzed dad is probably not the best thing for my daughters or having a dead dad is probably not the best thing. So I realize I'm a little bit more cautious because I realize the fragility of this life. The point that I would make is this, the way that you view your life after this death will actually affect how you live currently in this life. In other words, if you see that this life is actually a gateway to the next life, and if you have a hope of resurrection, meaning you will be given a new body, that the riches of Jesus will become your riches, that the life of Jesus will become your life, the security of Jesus will become your security, everything that Jesus gives, that Jesus has will one day become yours because you are an heir of the king, then you will live in a way in which money to you in this life is not ultimate. Money will becomes a means to give away, to bless other people. You can use money as a means to bless the church, to bless missionaries, to help fund different types of missions and means of people that are hurting and marginalized. Because money is not something that you have to live for in this life because there is nothing after this life. You begin to see your wealth differently. You begin to view your relationships differently. And it all has to do with how you view life after this life. Does that make sense? Because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, or Sadducees, sorry, in this case, had a view that there was no life after death. They had everything to lose. This is one of the reasons why they were basically tracking Jesus down, and they wanted to find out if Jesus was a revolutionary after the order of the Maccabees, then they would do anything within their power to quell that before it began, because they were fearful of losing all of their power that they had amassed. Because that's all they would have at least in their mind. What you believe about life after this death, life after this life, will affect the way that you live. The second thing that we see not only is the problem of the resurrection, the second thing that we see is the ignorance of the resurrection. Jesus then says to them in verse 24, he says, you guys, you err, you have a problem because you don't understand in verse 24. Is this not the reason that you were wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are they given a marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, real quickly, when they came to Jesus, they asked Jesus this really ridiculous question. And the question had to do with an Old Testament law called the Leveret Law. Back in the ancient day, what would happen typically is when uh, a woman was married to a man, a woman back in that day didn't have a lot of rights. In other words, uh, the way that society was set up, there was not a lot of help for women. So if you were a woman... Uh, or if you were a man, you had a lot of daughters, you would always want to make sure that your, wife, that your daughter was going to get married to a really good 
a man that can actually provide for her financially and take care of her and give her wealth and, you know, that he would be a healthy guy, that he would, you know, be able to, to give her a lot of kids and so on and so forth, that the name would continue to go on and live for a long time because that would be the form of her security. She was no longer underneath your roof. You want to make sure that she's going to be taken care of for the rest of her life. And yet the way that the law was set up in Israel was that if a woman died and she was married to a particular guy and the guy died and she had no babies, then a younger brother was to marry this woman. And then when, she did, when he did have babies or when she had babies, those babies actually don't go to him. It goes to her dead brother. And you're like, it's kind of weird. I know it's kind of weird, but the idea is, is to carry on the family name through the older brother, to carry on the wealth so that the inheritance would actually be given to that dead brother through the wife and it would continue to perpetuate the name. Now, the religious leaders, Sadducees, come to Jesus, don't believe in the resurrection again, and they create this really strange case study that has to do with seven brothers. They all die, married to the same woman, which is highly suspicious. And the bottom line is this, is that they're like, okay, in the resurrection, who's, you know, who's, whose wife is she going to be? All right, silly question. But then Jesus says, you guys are ignorant. You don't understand. You ask silly questions because you come from a place of ignorance. You don't get it. Now, Jesus basically does two things. He says, you don't understand the scripture, nor do you understand the power of God. And before I jump into that, I want to basically take a second to say this, that within the Christian church, in a lot of ways, there's been a horrible marketing job upon the afterlife. Let me put it this way. Satan, actually, I would say, has sort of hijacked the marketing department about heaven and has created heaven and turned heaven into this ridiculous-sounding netherworld that people will go to, that when you die, you will go and be sort of like this angelic being. You'll be very large, very overweight. If you start off in the next life overweight, you will be even more overweight. You'll have, be given a very small pair of wings. You'll be given your own personalized pair of depends. You will live on a cloud, and you will pluck a harp. It will be a horrible place to live for all eternity. The music will be bad. The food will be so-so. But on the other hand, hell will be a place of great partying. The band will be very loud and very good. There'll be really good food. There'll be the greatest people there. And what happens is it's sort of created in our culture this caricature. And again, like I said, Satan has sort of hijacked the marketing department. It's created this ridiculous thing so that what ends up happening is heaven, the afterlife, for people who are faithful to God, sounds more like hell. And hell, the afterlife, for those who hate God, actually sounds more like a heaven. Now, if you were Satan, wouldn't you want to do that? That's exactly what Satan wants to create. But the reality is what Jesus is saying is that, no, no, no. The afterlife is actually way beyond, far beyond what you can ever even imagine. It is so good. Jesus then says something that's a little bit confusing to some of us. Because he says, actually, in your ignorance, you guys are like, oh, what's going to happen to marriages and so on and so forth. Then Jesus adds, what happens in the resurrection, there will not be a need for marriage. There will not be marriage as we see and identify marriage within this life. That's a little bit confusing for some of us because some of us, you may have been married for a very long time. I've been married going on for 23 years. I love my wife. I enjoy my wife. I look forward to spending a long time with my wife. The reality is some of you may have been married for a short amount of time and you love your spouse as well. And the thought of like not being there with them, some of you are like looking for a way out and think heaven might be the spot. But the reality is, reality I'm trying to point out is that we have these misconceptions. But here's what I think, and this is my best attempt to really try to understand what I think Jesus is trying to say, is that marriage or the covenant of marriage in this life, marriage is basically this relationship. It's a covenant where two people 
covenant vow. They make a vow to each other saying that I will forever be faithful to love you, to serve you, to support you, to be by your side as long as we both shall live. I covenant to you to always love you, to always demonstrate affection to you. I covenant to always belong to you. I covenant to you to always accept you. So if I can put it this way, in this life, at least in theory, every marriage is an attempt to always be faithful, to always bear acceptance, to always show affection. In other words, we oftentimes in this life, every marriage is a moment of making vows that are too big for you to handle, making commitments that are way beyond you to ever fulfill. Let me put it this way. Every marriage in this life is like a bike with training wheels. Or, to give it another metaphor, it's a billboard. Or, to give it another metaphor, it's an advertising or marketing campaign. Or another one, it's a model home to point to the ultimate home of Jesus with Christ when Jesus vows himself he will ultimately be the one of full affection the one of full acceptance the one that will bring full love full commitment full compassion in its entirety in some ways I think that there may be some similarity when Jesus says in the new world that's to become there will be any more sun or no need for any more sun some have been like oh it's like all dark no Jesus will be its light. And I actually don't even think it's intended to say there won't be any sun. But we don't live by the light of the sun. It's like having a flashlight in the dark. You need a flashlight in the dark because there's no light. But in the middle of noonday, you don't need a flashlight. Does the flashlight still work? Can you still turn it on? Yes. But you don't need it. In the same way, what Jesus, I think, is trying to say is in the age to come, in the day of resurrection... Everything that marriage is a symbol of will be in its fullness and its reality, and you'll be part of it. Everything that we long for our marriages to be now that they're not will be in its fullness, complete in Jesus. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. So Jesus, first of all, says you guys are ignorant of the scriptures. And here's the point. What are the scriptures? In short, the scriptures are the story of God. That's what they are. They're the story of God. They're the story of what God has done. The story of what God has involved himself. The story of God's creation. The story of God's redemption. The story of God's covenant. It's the story of God. And so what I think Jesus is saying to those religious leaders is that you guys have lost your way. The interesting thing I think it's important to note that these guys that Jesus is talking to, they're not drug addicts. They're not pimps. They're not addicts. They're not people that are on the street that most would look at and be like, oh, I can tell that guy's a sinner because just look at his... Look at his brow. I mean, you can tell the guys. These guys were the religious leaders. They knew the Bible. They were familiar with the laws of Moses. These were people that everybody looked up to and says, what do you have to say on this particular subject? These were the go-to people in all Israel. The important thing to note about this is that oftentimes the people who think they get it best don't get it. They're the first away they're the most ignorant because they're confident in their own arrogance and in their own pride and these guys don't get it jesus says you're ignorant because in reality the bible is about me but you're lost because in some way you've been using the bible you've been using the scriptures to somehow perpetuate your own kingdom your own name you've been involved in a power grab and you've been using religion as a mean to obtain your power grab 
And as a result of that, Jesus is saying, you're lost. The actual Greek word that he uses there is, is literally, it's the Greek word that, that can be translated, you're a shooting star. You're just this random comet flying around. You're in the orbit of something other than the right thing. You're just out shooting around. There's no order, no organization, no equilibrium whatsoever to your life. You're totally, completely lost. You've lost the plot line. And that may be some of your lives right now. You've lost the plot line. Let me say this. Every single time we begin to look at the Bible as being a means to somehow be the means to our own self-satisfaction, our own fulfillment, you've lost the plot line. When you take the Bible and you make it about yourself, you've lost the plot line. When you take your life out of the context of the Bible, when you don't see yourself within God's Word, meaning we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we start trying to live our lives on our own, or we try to push God away, when we try to run from God, when we try to somehow remove the imprint, the image of God within our lives, and we try to distance ourselves from Him, we lose the plot line. And what ends up happening, inevitably, we don't just walk away and have sort of like a, a non-plot line. What ends up happening, by default, we always start kind of writing our own little plot line. Oh, the plot line is this. I need many boyfriends. I'll keep having a boyfriend because I'm not satisfied with the one I've had before. I'm going to keep going finding another boyfriend. I need sex, or I need more money, or I need more power. I need a better job, more vocation. I need more kids. I need more, you know, accumulation of stuff. And you're, what you're doing is you're writing your own script. You're writing your own plot line. And at some point, you find yourself lost, just like the religious leaders. Maybe that's for some of you right now. But what I love about Jesus and even interacting with these people is he could have written them off and says, I don't even want to talk to you. You come to me back, when you come back to me, when you have a better argument, don't bring me these silly questions. Jesus could have done all of this. But he begins to entertain their own question, begins to respond to them as if to say, you're lost and what you need is me. The second thing that Jesus goes on to say, he just says, you don't understand the power of God. And what I think Jesus is saying here is that Throughout God's word and throughout Jesus' own life, Jesus has revealed the power of God in his life. And that's what Mark's been constantly telling us is the storyline of Jesus, that everything he does, he does based upon the power of God. But what I've been saying all along as we've been going through this is that one of the most unique things about Jesus' display of power is he always uses his power as a means of blessing or leveraging blessing into other people's lives. The religious leaders, the Sadducees in this case, they had power. They were using their power as a means to leverage authority and power for themselves, to amass more power for themselves, to secure power for themselves. In other words, the power they had, they were reinvesting back into their own security. And this is what we typically do as human beings. All of us in this room have some degree of power. Some of you might look at your life and be like, I don't feel that powerful. All of us have some level of power. I mean, you might work at you know, in and out, and you might have control of power over like that little machine that makes, you know, fresh french fries. Like, you can do that, and that's your level degree of power. And the reality is, you have some power. You have roommates that you are friends with. You have some people in your life that look up to you. Maybe if you have a younger brother who looks up to you. Or you might be a dad. You might be an owner of a business. You might be someone that has others that work under you. You're in a place of management. You might be a mom. You've got a posse of like five kids that are constantly looking to you for input and insight. You have power. All of us have power. 
problem is, is that oftentimes we misuse our power as means of obtaining more power for ourselves. We misuse the power that we have. We misappropriate it. I mean, this could be the father that rather than treating his kids with dignity, value, and respect and using his power as a means of shepherding them and loving them and speaking Jesus into their lives and praying over them when they're hurting, or oftentimes the flip side of that is a father who just sort of ditches all that power altogether, and rather than being an active force or an agent in their life of blessing, he just sort of bypasses the power and doesn't do anything with the power. He, he uses his power just to be lazy. At the end of the day, all of us have power. And at the end of the day, all of us, to some degree, we misuse that power. That's just the way that we are as human individuals and beings. The Bible describes this as sin, meaning we've been given something, and the purpose of us being given something is so that we would then use that as a means of blessing to someone else, to bless other people. So the power we have, that we can use the power as a means of blessing to other people. And every single time in the life of Jesus, he uses that power to bless other people. The reason for that is because the power of God is put on display and coupled with the love of God. And what Jesus is saying, you don't understand the power of God. You've taken authority, you've taken power, and you've abused it. You've used it as a means to make power plays, to secure your own position because you've lost the plot line of what God is all about in your life. You've created false gods, and as a result of that, you're lost. Jesus is saying, this is where you're at. The third thing I want to finish up with is really this promise of resurrection. Because then Jesus then goes on to say to them, he says, don't you know what Moses said? And he points them back to a passage when Moses is at the burning bush. And God's talking to Moses. And he says to Moses, and he basically says, <coughs> this is who I am. I'm the God of Isaac, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is God's way of basically saying, your forefathers, I'm their God. And what Jesus does is he adds his teaching to this, and he says, really what God was saying there is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they're dead, are still alive. Though they're no longer alive on this planet, they're still alive in relationship, living relationship with God. God is still their God. God hasn't ceased to be their God. God is just still as much as ever their God as he always has ever been their God. And God will always be their God because he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. But he says that phrase, I am. The phrase I am is an important phrase. It's actually a phrase that's used in the Old Testament exclusively to refer to God. The concept of I am basically means uh, the opposite of like I was or I will be. And it's, it signifies an idea that God is in the present. But he is also in the past. He's also in the future, meaning he's, he's overall. For you and I, we are just in the present. And that's where we're at right now. Some of us kind of live in the past, meaning our mind have been affected and our hearts have been affected. Our emotions may have been affected by other things in the past, wounds, difficulties, hardships that have uh, affected us and damaged us and scarred us. But the reality is we live in the present. But God lives and encompasses all of them. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus would identify, or God identifies himself as the I am. There's one of the most tragic phrases, uh, you know, in, in our language is when somebody basically says, I was. I was a husband at once. I was a business owner at once. I once had a lot of money. I once was a parent. 
Because what that signifies is that whatever type of relationship or thing you had to somebody else, it no longer exists. It's not there any longer. But the point that God is making is that He is. And that He's present. He's current. He's with His people now. He's not some God who's far off, who's distant, that you have to somehow hope and pray and beg Him to come down to us. He's a God that you need to know. He's here present now with us currently in this place. That's how close He is. And with Jesus himself, even in his own ministry, there's several occasions, at least seven of them in the Gospel of John, where Jesus refers to himself as the I am. He says things like this, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or I am the resurrection and the life. There's that word resurrection. What Jesus is saying about himself and what Mark wants us to understand about this Jesus, why the hope of the resurrection is such an unbelievably good promise is that what Jesus is trying to say is that if we trust him, trust what he's saying about the way things are, that there is life after this life, that there is hope beyond this grave, that the life that we're living right now in this moment is not all that there is. This is really good news. If we understand it, if we believe it, if we trust it, And the reason why we can know for certain that this is true, because what we see with Jesus is that even though he came into this world, he died. Three days later, the most unbelievable event that's ever happened on this planet took place in Jesus because he rose again from the dead. He's alive. He lives. He is the God of the living. He is alive currently. Right now he's alive. And this is absolutely good news. And the reason why this is good news is because if Jesus is the bread of life, then this, what this means basically, and to the degree that we see this, that as the bread of life, he himself came and was broken so that we who are starving could be fed. That Jesus is the good shepherd, as he says, I am the good shepherd. That he came. He laid his life down, meaning he allowed others to brutally murder him so that we who are wandering sheep, astray, totally lost in our own storyline, our own plot line, totally lost so that we could be brought home. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection of life, that the one true God who only knows nothing but life came and died. For us who know nothing but death can actually be given the hope of life. The reason why we believe in the gospel is not simply because it's credible, because it's based upon the testimony of Jesus and others who loved Jesus and followed him. It's not just simply because it's credible. That's why we believe it. The reason why we believe the gospel is because it's absolutely incredible. It happened. Jesus did it, and he invites us to leave behind the storylines, the plot lines that we've been living for ourselves that have left us in a place, in a status of being lost, to enter into his story, to enter into the life that he gives to us, to enter into the hope that he promises to each one of us. To the degree that you believe that, you will live differently. You will live differently in relation to your money, You will see your money as a means of blessing to other people. You'll see it as an opportunity to joyfully give it away, to help other people, to fund and support the mission of the church. 
You will see your energy and your time as a gift from God to be able to be used as a means of blessing other people, of giving your time and your energy and your talents away. You will see power as a means of rather than amassing a kingdom for yourself, rather you'll be like King Jesus who used his power to relinquish it all so that he can give himself away. If, to the degree that you see that he did that for you, not just because he's powerful and he had to, but because he's loving, because he loves you. That will rearrange your heart. That will change your affections. And it will cause you to see that he is a God that can be trusted because he's a God who loves you. When you give him this God, this king, your heart, he won't shatter it. He'll mend it. When you give this God your heart, he won't defile you. He will take and carry your defilement. When you give your heart to this God, he won't strip you of your identity. You will actually find your identity in him. That's who this God is. We're going to finish. We're going to sing a couple songs. We'll partake of communion. We have communion in the back in these little back three areas. And we do this to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. The communion is a meal that reminds us not only of the night before Jesus died in which he was going to lay his life down, but also reminds us of the meal that we will have one day with Jesus in this kingdom that he will establish and rule and reign, and we will be able to join with him should we trust him. So I invite you to partake of the communion. If you trust Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you're not a Christian, I encourage you, you can sing, you can be prayed for, we invite you to be part of that. We encourage you to not partake of communion because it is a meal that represents a relationship that you have with Jesus. If you want that relationship with Jesus, you can call upon his name. The Bible says you'll be saved. Trust in him. Look to him. We're going to sing, and I want to invite you into that. In fact, what I'd love is, why don't we all stand right now, and I want to invite each one of you into this story that Jesus calls us into. That means to repent, to turn away from the stories of our lives. If you're here this morning, and there's anything that's going on in your life, maybe you feel lost. And you've been trying to carve out your own story. You've been trying to write it out yourself. You haven't been doing such a great job because you still feel more lost. The more you feverishly try to invest in your own story, the more lost you actually become. And if you're here and you want to be prayed for, you want to come out of that, you come into the story that Jesus has rescued you in, uh, we'll have some people here available to pray for you up on this front little slope right here. We'll have some of the leaders that are going to make their way up during the worship. And they'll be there to pray for you, some men, some women. be happy to pray with you. If you're here and you're sick, or you're feeling if your heart is just heavy, you have any type of things going on in your life, you just feel like you want someone to pray for you, we're going to have some people that are pray for you. The rest of us, let's sing. Let's meet with God. He's a God that's of the living. He's here now in this place, gathered with his people. Let's sing to him. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We want to worship you now and give to you our hearts, confess our sin, and to see you as a good, loving, and powerful king who uses your power for our redemption. That's how much you love us.